Well, again, good morning, church family, and welcome to Clear Creek. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here. If you're a guest, again, so glad that you're joining us. And to all my family, I love you. I miss you. I'm somewhere right now in the Jordan, uh, the area of Jordan, uh, with our group, enjoying seeing some of the places that those who came before us traveled. But I look forward to seeing you here next Sunday. Well, today we continue our series, God Wins. Look at this wild and weird letter called Revelation, specifically the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you know from last week, if you were a part of our time together, the word revelation simply means unveiling or disclosing. And this one book is all about showing the people of God the person and divinity of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it comes down to this one word, this one word, Perspective. Perspective simply means to describe the size of one thing or something about one thing by comparing it to another thing. So sometimes you'll go into a dictionary or an encyclopedia or maybe Wikipedia and you'll see a picture of a man and next to the man will be a bunch of different whales or other animals. And it will be a perspective chart saying these whales are this big compared to this man. It's a perspective help. And perspective is very important to all of us for driving, for walking, for interacting. But isn't it true that sometimes our perspective can be twisted or broken? Sometimes we do it on accident, other times on purpose. For instance, there are these things called forced perspective pictures. Have you seen some of these? Uh, it's, It's where something is done so certain things that should be really, really big are actually really, really small. Let me give you an example of it. How about this? A person looks like they're holding the Eiffel Tower. Now, is there really a 10,000 foot tall kid somewhere in the world? No. But it looks like a giant is holding the Eiffel Tower. Why? Because the person is in the foreground closer to us and the Eiffel Tower, which is massive, is in the distance, forced perspective. Or how about this picture of a guy eating a rainbow? Again, it looks like something that it really isn't. Or how about this woman who is kissing the Sphinx? Again, she's up close, and the Sphinx that is massive, in fact, you can see a camel right here. There's a person on a camel, but the Sphinx is massive. Yet because she is so close to the camera and the Sphinx so far, she looks and they look alike. Or what about this last one? A woman who looks like she's putting a bunch of people in a small pot. Again, forced perspective. Why am I saying this to you today? Is it because I wanted to show you these interesting pictures? Yes, absolutely. But actually, more than that, it's because the church is in danger of losing perspective. The first century Christians, at the end of the turn of the first century, were really struggling. It was a time of great suffering. They were under persecution by the Roman emperor Domitian. He was an evil man. And the reign of terror that he brought to bear on the Christians was greater than anything the Christian church had experienced at that size up until that point. Their good friend and their leader, John the Apostle, had been arrested, taken from them from the area of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And he was put out on this little chunk of rock in the Aegean Sea called Patmos where he would die, they believed. The early Christians were in danger of losing perspective. And I'm afraid that as those of us who've grown up, many in a Christianized nation, 
We now find ourselves in a post-Christian America, and it is easy for us to lose perspective. But the God who through His Spirit brought a vision to John and to His churches to realign their perspective now comes to us today in the same words that encourage them, encourage us now. If you would, let's stand together and let's read these words of the ultimate perspective from, John, or from Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. John writes these words. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, by the way, that's Sunday, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a gold sash around his chest. Hair on his head was like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the ultimate perspective. Let's pray together. As your followers from so long ago and in every point in history, we find ourselves in danger of losing perspective. But this picture of our brilliant Jesus shows us what is true. May we see Jesus as he truly is. Give us your divine perspective as we behold our King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Patmos is nothing more than a little piece of rock in the Aegean Sea. In fact, some of you will have maps in the back of your Bibles. And on the little map, it won't even list Patmos. It won't even show Patmos. At most, it may say Patmos and put a little line out to the middle of the Aegean Sea. In fact, if I were to say, find Patmos, you'd go, I can't. This is worse than those Where's Waldo books you used to look at at the dentist's office as a kid. So let me help you out. Patmos is right here. It is just a little chunk of rock. It only takes you about 25 minutes or 25 miles to walk around the whole island. The island of Patmos is 6 miles wide, 10 miles long. It's an itty-bitty little rock in the middle of nowhere, and that's the point. It was hard to find. And more to the point, 
it'd be hard for people to find you. The whole point of putting people on Patmos, it was Rome's way of saying, not only are you imprisoned, but you will be forgotten. Rome, the eternal city, goes on and on, but you will die alone and in obscurity. The church was in desperate straits. Now, at this point, we believe John, the one who wrote the vision of Revelation, we believe that he was an old man, probably in his late 90s. This would have been written probably in about 95, 96 AD. He was at this point the bishop of the churches in Asia Minor, simply meaning he cared for the churches. He helped lead the leaders. The churches knew John. They loved John. And John knew them and he loved them. He knew the names of their church leaders. He knew many of the members within the churches. And John knew because of the great persecution that many of them would not be alive when his letter arrived to them. John was alone. John had been taken out and he was now in a wilderness moment. You know what wilderness moments are, don't you? They're the moments where all that you have, all that you rely on is stripped from you. And if you do any sort of survey of history or the scriptures, you will see that every time God wants to do something great in the life of someone, he takes them to the wilderness. For instance, Moses, wilderness experience. David, wilderness experience. Elijah, wilderness experience. John the Baptist, his whole ministry was a wilderness experience. Even Jesus Christ himself Wilderness experience. The Apostle Paul, wilderness experience. Have you heard the name Billy Graham? He went through a wilderness experience. Martin Luther, John Wesley, wilderness experiences. Whenever God is about to do something big in your life, He leads you into a wilderness experience to get your focus off of all the other things and give you right perspective. Friends, hear me now. Some of you are in a wilderness experience. You are, you feel alone. All the things that you relied on, all the things you thought you could count on have been taken away. But hear me, God has not left you or abandoned you. God has you where he needs you to get your full attention. See, Rome thought they sent John to be exiled on Patmos. When in reality, God brought John to Patmos to get his full attention And it is on Patmos that John sees Jesus. But did you notice what day it was? It was the Lord's Day. That's Sunday. The church, since really the first followers, started worshiping on Sunday. Why? Because that's the day when Jesus rose from the grave. And so John, although he's on Patmos, although there's not a church, although there's not a Sean Alex leading worship, although there's not communion with the saints, he can still have communion with God. So John goes to worship. If you go to the island of Patmos, there's a cave there. And they believe that's where John had the vision of God. But he sees in this vision. Now here's what I want you to see. This book begins and is all about and centers on worship. The book of Revelation is all about worship. It is written by a worshiper to a worshiping community. It's written on a day of worship, and it is about the one to whom we worship. Domitian, emperor of Rome, said, worship me. And John says, Domitian is just a small thing. You worship the king of kings. But here's the thing. To meet Jesus in worship, you have to be present. 
Be with your brothers and sisters. Be with the Lord. Be present in the moment if you want to meet with Jesus because Jesus shows up in this moment. In fact, worship is the theme of Revelation. If you don't remember anything else but you remember that, you will have gotten a ton out of this book. See, some of you think, I can't wait till we get to the Battle of Armageddon. Yeah, explosions and armies and death and screams and all the things that make for a great summer blockbuster. I cannot wait. We'll read the text. Go to chapter 19. It's one verse. The Battle of Armageddon is not some major motion picture. It is one verse. I can't get you to read the text, but you'll see the movies. Ignore the movies. Read the text because the text is not some major battle. You have Jesus Christ who leads out onto the battlefield, all the enemies before him, the beast, the dragon, they're there, they're ready to face off. Jesus comes and we follow him. But the verse, Jesus says, come on. And the dragon goes, and it's taken away. One verse. And what are you and I doing in this moment of great battle? We're not wearing armor. We are wearing robes, white robes. Now, I don't know a lot about um, battle or combat, but I do know this. You don't wear your nightgown to a fight. If you're going to square up against an enemy, you wear the armor, you get prepared, and you get ready to fight. But we are not prepared to fight because Jesus is the one who wins the war. The Christians in Revelation 19 are not there to fight against the devil. They are there to worship the king. Revelation is about worship. The one who has the victory. The one who is on the throne. And so John, in this moment of worship, he hears a voice like a trumpet. And we're told that he turns. But do you notice what it says? When he turns around, he sees the voice, or he's seeing the voice speaking. He looks for it, but when he turns, notice what he sees. He doesn't see the voice or the one speaking. Rather, he sees seven golden lampstands. You can almost hear the record go, why the seven golden lampstands? First, the seven golden lampstands, we're told in verse 20, represents or symbolizes the church. John sees the church before he sees Jesus. This is why many of your friends have such a hard time with Jesus, isn't it? They see the church before they get to see Jesus. And there are days that I, that you, that we, we just don't represent Jesus very well. It's because our perspective is off. He sees the church, and then we're told he keeps turning until he sees among the lampstands someone. Now get your pens, get your pads, get your notebooks ready, because we're about to get a Technicolor, widescreen, IMAX picture of Jesus Christ, and there's going to be lots of details. In fact, you may want to get your camera ready on your phone and just take some pictures of the screen because John is feverishly going to describe the indescribable Jesus, and it's like his head is about to pop as he describes him. So here we go. Are you ready? He says, I saw someone like, number one, a son of man. Now, you hear this, and I hear this, we go, what's the big deal? This is huge. First, this phrase, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's the one he uses over and over and over. In fact, it comes, though, not from the New Testament. It comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. By the way, quick tip, 
Anytime you run into a symbol you're not familiar with in the book of Revelation, go look in the Old Testament. Chances are it's there because John is going to use lots of symbols and imagery and numbers from the Old Testament to describe the scenes he sees in heaven. And he begins with this, I see one like the Son of Man. This goes to Daniel 7 when Daniel, in apocalyptic literature and language, describes one as the Ancient of Days. This is God. He sees four beasts coming out of the water. Four beasts. I wonder if we'll see them again in Revelation. They symbolized all the kingdoms of the earth, the power structures and authorities. But at the worst moment of human suffering, the Ancient of Days appears on his throne. This is God himself. His throne is surrounded by fire and brilliance. He is wearing white. His hair is white. By the way, does this mean that God has white hair? That if you could see God, he's just got a big old man head of hair? No. Daniel is using imagery to describe the purity of God, the wholeness of God, the rightness of God. And he sits on his throne over and above all of the enemies of God. And it's in this moment that then one comes, Daniel says, who appeared as a son of man. So he's human, but he's more. And the Son of Man appears and he comes to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man authority and dominion to rule over all the kingdoms of the earth and to rule. And this one, this Son of Man, will bring justice and righteousness wherever he comes. Gang, I don't know how to tell you this, but this imagery is the image of a king who will never be dethroned. It is the image of Jesus Christ. I saw one like the Son of Man, and he's dressed, notice this, in a robe. In a robe. Now, why a robe? This is the image of what a priest would wear. Now, if you, we've talked some Greek language. Let's talk Latin for a moment here. Do you want to know what the Latin word for a priest is? Well, it's right here. It's pontifex. Now, if you grew up going to maybe a Catholic church or another high church that began using Latin in their masses or their worship services, then maybe you've heard this term before, a priest called a pontifex. But do you know what the word pontifex originally means? It was originally an engineering term, and it meant bridge builder. (laughs) Come on now, isn't that good? Jesus is our bridge builder. He is our way maker. He is the one who bridges the gap between God and sinful humanity through the sacrifice of his life on the cross. He is the prince of peace and he is the priest who brings us to God. But not only that, do you notice his feet were told? Go ahead, next slide. His feet. Oh, His eyes, I beg your pardon, his eyes were like blazing fire. In other words, he sees through the facade. He sees through all the falsehood of the world. You cannot pull a fast one over Jesus Christ. Next slide. Notice what he says. His feet, here we go. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Do you know what this means? Again, this goes back to the image and vision Daniel had in the Old Testament. He saw images of kings with these feet of clay. Well, clay breaks Clay is brittle. In other words, no matter how powerful an earthly ruler is, his reign will crumble and he will one day no longer rule. But Jesus, his feet are bronze. They are strong. They are sturdy. In other words, he has the strength to carry the weight of the world's governments on his shoulder. 
Do you remember what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, 16? He says, and the governments of this world will rest on his shoulders. Why? Because he is strong enough to hold it all together. He is strong enough to rule. He goes on, not only his feet, but notice his voice was like rushing water. Have you ever been to a waterfall and it was so loud, so powerful, so overwhelming that you didn't just hear it with your ears, you felt the sound with your body? John is saying the voice of Jesus is power itself. Do you remember in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? And how does God do it? Through his spoken word. And then in John chapter 1, Jesus is called the word. His voice brings power. And not only his voice, but in his right hand, he held seven stars. Why right hand? Well, in the ancient world, the right hand was the symbol of power. We shake with our right hand because it is symbolic of power, of strength. And in God's right hand, in Jesus' right hand, the seven stars. We'll talk about that next week. But here's what you need to know. Jesus holds you in his hand. He's got you covered. And out of that mouth that has the booming voice, we're told out of his mouth comes a sword like a double or a double-edged sword. Why a sword? Because the words of Jesus are able to cut through the lies and falsehood of this world. They have power. When Jesus speaks, the universe responds and Jesus's enemies flee from him. We go on. His face was like the shining sun in all of its brilliance. Why the sun? Because Jesus' face reflects the holiness, the purity, the perfection of who God is. Just like if you tried to look at the sun, you could look for maybe a moment, but you, you'd be blinded if you look too much. There's so much of it that you can't take it all in, but you need the sun to survive. We can't take in all of Jesus, but we need Jesus to survive. And you can see John, as he's seeing this image, he's just like scrambling to write all of it down as fast as he can. He's like this. He's like this. He's, what would it be? Well, he's like this. No wonder that at seeing the revealed Jesus in all of his glory, John does the only sensible thing. Do you notice what he does? I fell at his feet as though dead. When I saw Jesus, the only response, the only thing I could do, my knees buckled, my eyes rolled back, and I fell. Because when you see Jesus for who he is, the perspective shift that he gives, you will never be the same. And and if you're like me, if you're like John, when you see Jesus in his glory, your response is not to beat your chest and look how great I am, look how strong I am. It is to say he is glorious and good and woe is me for I am a sinful person I know what I've done but he knows more what do I do and Jesus does something so beautiful and so tender Jesus doesn't blow John up and say well remember when you did this remember when you failed there remember when you dropped the ball he instead he touches John Then Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Why? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I was here before Domitian and I will be here long after Domitian. 
I was dead, meaning I died three days, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. In other words, death cannot take Jesus again. Death is not the master. Jesus is master. And this is why Jesus then says, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Even death has no authority over God, over Jesus Christ. He says, do not be afraid. Friends, I don't know what is on your mind, what's on your heart. I don't know what perspective is off today. I don't know what seems so big to you. But the first emotion most of us experience when our perspective is off is a sense of fear. A fear that we'll be found out. A fear for what we've done. Or maybe it's just a fear of, oh no, I don't know how to fix the problem. Oh no, what happens if? A fear for our relationships. A fear for our kids. A fear for our economy. A fear for our church. For our world. And the first thing Jesus says after John sees him is don't be afraid. Because I am here and I've always been here. The world cannot take me away and no one can take you from me. But here's the problem, isn't it? Some of us have taken the mark of the beast. What is the mark? The mark is simply saying, I don't trust Jesus to take care of me. I will, do you remember last week, I will take some incense and I will sprinkle it on the altar of some other God and say, this God is Lord. You say, Josh, I would never do that. Let's talk about it. You don't want a Jesus big enough to tell you what to do with your finances. So what do you do? You push Jesus away and say, I I got this one, Jesus. You don't want a Jesus who's big enough to tell you how to live your life, maybe your sexual life. And so you push Jesus away and you say, Jesus, I've got this. Or maybe you don't want a God, a Jesus, big enough who can tell you how to raise your kids so you push him away. Or a God big enough to tell you how to love your spouse so you push him away. Or a Jesus big enough to tell you how to deal with your finances in work and business so you push him away. And you push him away so far that this great big God looks about this big. And in the distance between you and he, in steps the dragon the enemy. He says, I'll take care of you. Just a little incense. Just a little worship to me. I'll take care of it. The first thing we need to know is how big Jesus is. The church has always been in danger of losing perspective. Nothing has changed. And nothing will change. There will always be the temptation to push Jesus away. And I know, I know, I know. For so many of us, you're saying, but Josh, I'm scared. Life is tough. I I don't know what to do. And and I need to make these side deals. I can't just rely on Jesus. After all, will he really take care of me? After all, will he really provide? After all, will he really forgive? After all, will he really reunite and restore? And so I've got to make these side deals. I'm scared. Friend, Christians have always faced fear. It has always been a hard thing to follow Jesus. It was hard in the first century Roman Empire. It was hard in Nazi Germany. It was hard in communist Russia, in communist China. And it will be hard here. But hear me now. The proper response is not to make side deals because the enemy looks big. The proper response is to see Jesus for who He is. The book of Revelation was not written for the unbelieving world. 
is, was written for you and me so we might see Jesus rightly and we might worship him as Lord. The right perspective is not Caesar's Lord, Hitler is not Lord, Stalin, Mao, no one. The Republicans are not Lord, the Democrats are not Lord, your paycheck is not Lord, your spouse is not Lord, your children are not Lord, your sexual identity is not Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. And when we get this perspective, it changes everything. So we're about to listen to what Jesus says to the churches. That's next week. But I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus your Lord? If he is not, I would encourage you, take that step. I would invite you in just a moment as we sing this last song, meet some of our elders, some of our leaders. They will be meeting and waiting for you in the lobby. They will help you take that next step of seeing the bigness of Jesus and trusting him as Lord. But is he your Lord? And if he is, would we see him for who he truly is? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this picture of the true Jesus. May it overwhelm us. May it inspire us. May it cause us to rethink how we live. But may it ultimately give us the boldness and courage to worship at Jesus' And Jesus alone feet. May we say, you are Lord. And Father, I confess too often I bow not to Domitian, but I certainly bow to my selfish ambition and my pettiness and my pride. And Lord, if anyone else in here is honest enough to tell you the truth, we all from time to time struggle with giving, giving allegiance to someone other than for you because you just don't seem big enough to hold it. But Lord, draw near to us, get big so we may see you for who you are, so that we may worship you for who you are, and so that the world may know the Jesus who rules and who reigns and will come again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all those who agreed said, amen.